from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, everyone. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm one of your co-hosts today, along with my colleague, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. This is obviously a call-in show where we'd like everyone to participate. Actually, we have lots of topics to talk about today. We've got basketball. We've got baseball. We've got hockey. Of course, we've got the uh, Kentucky Derby coming up. If you want to join the conversation, please do. Call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, I hope you follow us throughout the week. I've been actually tweeting quite a bit at at WMoneyBall on our show. So lots going on. Adi, how are you this morning? I'm fine. I had a good week of watching some sports, particularly baseball. We'll get around to that later. We're definitely going to get sure. around to baseball because we have our you know every other week guest, Rick Peterson, and our call to the bullpen coming up at 8.30. And, of course, we have one of our, just for our listeners who want to know, well, of course, we want you to stay the whole two hours of our show. And, of course, we're live Wednesday morning, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And we have one of our favorite guests, Jeff Cedar, at 9 o'clock from Wyndham Stables, who's going to tell us all about the Kentucky Derby. Yes, Jeff is one of the... Uh, basically inventors of analytics in horse racing. I think he still might have no other company in that department, but he always has wonderful things to say about the use of uh, advanced metrics and forecasting really talent. I think his real real strength is in identifying horses very young as possible investments. Yep, that's obviously a big business, not just in horse racing, but in lots of different sports today. So the place I have to start out um, is about the NBA and... Uh, this caught my eye. You know, I was just interested because now we're, you know, obviously in the second round of the NBA playoffs. Things are, are playing out as they predicted, though, I think, pretty They're much playing the whole out way. Pretty much. But I went to 538 this morning. We, You and I both love 538.com. I do. And I said, I wonder if they've updated at all the odds of the teams winning the NBA Finals. So, as everyone knows, I was incredulous a couple weeks ago when I saw that the Cleveland Cavaliers were essentially given a 3% chance to win. They might be now at uh, a little higher, or no? I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. So I was, they were I given was a, considering that yeah, yesterday They were given well. a 3% chance, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, defending NBA champions, the greatest player on the planet on their team. They did beat the unbeatable Golden State Warriors last year. Um, I don't know, and they seem maybe have gotten better. They picked up Kyle Korver. They picked up uh, Ron Williams. They picked up a few players. You know, how can they be much worse? Well, let me give you the updated five thirty eight odds, and I'd just like your reaction to it. So, the Golden State Warriors are still the favorites. They're a ninety three percent chance to make it to the next round. Probably not surprising. They're going to beat Utah. They're an eighty percent chance of making it to the finals, and then a whopping. 72% to win it all. Now, just for our math fans out there, if you're an 80% chance to make it to the finals and a 72% chance to win it all, that they're saying conditional on making it to the finals, they're a 90% chance to win. So they're a 90% favorite in the finals. Let's just start with that. Adi, as a statistician, what's your reaction to 90-10 on the Golden State Warriors? Well, as... <laughs> You have to, 
obviously that's a overwhelming odds, particularly for a playoff series of only seven games, considering this is supposed to be at least the best team in one conference against the best team in the other conference. So you have to say that seems ridiculous. I, I don't think we would expect anything that high in any contest ever. So yeah, let me unpack it and ask where, where did it come from? And the 538, they use, a, they, use an, they use an ELO model, and that has some severe problems with it. And usually it actually pushes things away from the edges and not towards them. So I just, and so what do I mean by that mathematically? The edges are zero and one. And usually the ELO, the ELO model pushes things towards the middle and not towards the edges. And this one isn't actually an edge effect. So it's kind of contrary to why. And I think I know the answer, but I'll turn it over to you. Well, no, no, no. I'd love your thoughts on this. But don't we just tell our listeners again uh, here on Wharton Moneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlaugh. And I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. But just to remind everybody, I've talked about this a few times, what the ELO model is. It's actually a very simple mathematical model that says, let's imagine team A plays team B. Every team has what's called an unobservable or latent strength parameter, just a single number that represents their strength. And when team A plays team B, you take the difference in their strength. So let's imagine my strength is 1,700 on some scale. Adi's strength is 1,650 on some scale. The difference of that is 50 on the ELO rating scale. You then do a mathematical transformation of that 50 to turn it into a probability that A beats B. So another way to think about it for our listeners, I'm a visual person. I'm sure many of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball are as well. Just imagine a line where every team has a location on that line. The farther you are to the right, the stronger the team you are. The farther you are to the left, the weaker the team you are. And it's the difference between their locations on the line. And you say, well, where do those numbers come from? Well, where they come from is they've played games during the season. A played B, A played C, B played D. All these teams played each other. That's where these parameters come from. And by the way, not surprisingly, and Adi, I'd love your thoughts to unpack this, next to the probabilities is their ELO strength. So 538's not trying to obfuscate everything. They're telling you they're how telling they derive exactly They're exactly telling they you how they derive they don't, it. Um, they're not very clear on which link function they use for the ELO. You have to dig into the... Let me just be clear to the, our uh, listeners. When Adi's talking about a link function, remember I told all of you in the listening audience here, you got to take the difference between their ELO score and turn it into a probability. That's what Adi and what everybody, a statistician, calls a link function. How do you change a difference on a latent scale to some probability? So, so we seem to be adding a lot of statistical color for today. When Eric says the word latent, he means something that's unobserved. So how do you take the, this unobserved difference in power scores and turn that into a probability? Exactly. And, it's, and we are linking. We're linking these unobserved power, power scores to a observed But what's your thought? I mean, how do we get to 90%? Okay, so, so I can tell you where, it, where my guess is where it comes from, because I've played around with ELO a little bit. ELO, as you said, is, is estimated. The power rankings are estimated by who you've defeated and who you've lost to. What did the Cavaliers do in the last 25 games of the season? They were actually one of the mediocre teams. In the, they were a 500 team. They were team. a 500 team losing to bad teams. Right. So the ELO model doesn't know how to make sense of a good team losing to a bad team. 
And and because of the link function, which uh, drives things that are far apart on the on the on the power power scale, they're not supposed to lose. So a good team isn't supposed to lose to a bad team in basketball because generally they don't, and they're not supposed to lose to a bad so team a bunch of times. Right. So your point is, it's not just one loss; it's they had repeated numbers of iffy play. And then of course, what's the Elo model going to do? It's going to lower their strength. There's going to be then a larger difference between them and the Cavalier of uh, them and let's say Golden State. And then what's going to happen is it's going to be magnified in that probability. And, that, and therefore, it, they just don't have any power ranking of any size on, on, the, on the Cavaliers. And because the Warriors are so strong, that's where the 90% well, comes Well, let me from. just, just for our listeners out there, you might say, Bradlow, when are you going to finally tell us what the odds are for all the teams? Well, let me tell you. Okay. So well, I'll what did go, go up to, by the way? Uh, what, we, we started off by saying the Cavaliers began the, the tournament at 3%. Now that they've gone I'm through gonna the first get to round, that. what are they now? Uh, yeah, I'm going to get uh, to that. Coming? I'm going to get to it. So let me list the probability of winning the finals for all eight teams that are remaining. Okay? They've got, I already mentioned, the Warriors at 72%. Number two, the Boston Celtics. Not the Cavaliers. Of course. Well, they don't right, have of to course, play. Right? And also, they're the one seed. They were the mm-hmm. stronger team. They're at 8%. The Houston Rockets, 8%. The Spurs, 3%. I still, By the way, I still haven't gotten to the Cavaliers yet. Oh, my. The Cavaliers still at 3%. The Jazz at 3%. The Raptors at 2%. And the Wizards less than 1%. Again, and let me just comment one other thing to our Vincent. Adi, I'd like your thoughts on this. The Cavaliers, now in the playoffs, if you count the last year of the NBA Finals, the first round here, and the first game in the second round, have now won eight consecutive playoff games against winning teams. Now, even if they had only a 50-50 chance in each of those games, one half to the eighth is one out of 256. We're starting to get to a point where, you know, I don't know, eight winning eight consecutive playoff games is not that common an event. How does a team that have – this is what I want to talk to you about, about how does someone have face validity? How does a, a model make sense? The model says 3%, and they've won eight consecutive playoff games, which is, at let's say, a, roughly a 1 in 256 chance. How do you explain that to our fans out there? Aren't Everyone should be rushing out to their betting parlor and laying some money on the Cavs at 33-1. to 1. Well, actually, let's turn it around and say, what is Las Vegas giving? Because ELO model – might be giving 3%, but Vegas is a little smarter than Elo. It, it really is, it, and particularly on, it, it can factor in some of the observations that we've made right now. So we, that's one thing for us to get. I don't think you can be getting odds no of 33 way. to 1 in Vegas. They're not doing that because, because the, better, the betting market – by the way, Vegas doesn't have a model. Vegas, Vegas right. just balances market the forces. money. Exactly. Well, either way, I just thought that was interesting that you and I were sitting here a couple weeks ago, 3%. We were both a little bit incredulous. As you said – it really hasn't updated much. I mean, it's still no. at 3%, which just seems to me a little bit surprising. I've got to believe. And also the fact that, you know, at the moment, they're the fifth best team according to the ELO ratings. In other words, their probability of winning is fifth best. Well, either way, we're going to have to keep watching the NBA playoffs to see what's going on. Again, this is Wharton Moneyball. I'm Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. You can hear us talking about the NBA this morning. We're going to talk about lots of other sports. But, of course, you can always join the conversation, and please do, at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Again, and you can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Let me, let me close out the, the conversation. So, since while you were talking, I had the opportunity to look up what Vegas is offering. 13 to 4, which is 4 over 17, the, that is the probability that Vegas gives on the Cavaliers. 
Wow. Four over 17. So that's roughly a 20%. A little more than 20 Yeah, yeah. So the ELO model's at 3%. But the Vegas public says 20. All and right. I, now, I, if you told me, now, see, that's a very, very different thing. If you told me, by the way, if you had asked me to guess, I would have said, well, let's think about it. They've got to win this series, the next series, and the next series. So for them to win, let's even say, well, I mean, 0.6 to the third is 0.216. So even if they were 60%, matter of fact, I might argue 20% is actually too high. Because let's say, they're, let's do the following simple math for our audience here. Let's imagine the conference finals. Let's say they make it. Let's, let's first condition on them making it to the conference finals. Let's say they're 50-50 against the Celtics, a team for which they wouldn't have the home court. Let's pretend they're 50-50 against the Warriors, for which they wouldn't have home court. That's .25. When, to get to 20%, they'd have to be an 80% chance, yeah. which, by the way, might be right. Maybe the way to get to 20% is to say .8, .5, .5. Yeah. That gets you to 20%, and there you are. It's, I don't, it's think, I don't think that's unreasonable. Right. But let's just let me just before we we put this this story to bed. Elo is named after a man named Elo. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, I've I've accidentally done this myself. Say ELO. It's it's not. That's that's an orchestra band from from the eighties. Which, which we, by the way, enjoyed. just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall oh, of Fame. Let me just tell news. our let me just tell our <laughs> listeners out there if you want to see something great on television. ELO just got inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'm shocked that it took that long, but there's you can just see it replay, just like we're replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM Business Radio. The ELO, the uh, ELO Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction has been replayed throughout this entire week. And by the way, I don't remember the lead singer's name, but. They play like five songs. It was Don't great. Don't bring me down, I think. Oh, they, it, <laughs> it was our favorite. Lots of great songs. So, um, so the ELO rating actually was developed for chess. And there's a huge dif- difference between, obviously many differences between chess and, say, basketball or any of the other applications. And that is there's a less of a random component in chess. And so it's, it's used essentially to, to determine how your, your power score by looking at who beats whom. Now, obviously, uh, it's, it's there even... Even though it is a skill-dominated game, in fact, skill almost is completely the, the factor, two people who are, are almost the same, or one, this, you can lose to someone who's worse than you in chess. So it, that does happen. But it doesn't happen the way it happens in basketball. I mean, what the Great Cavaliers point. did, they, they, you were looking at a different Cavaliers in the last 15 games. They were, I don't know whether they rested um, LeBron James enough, but he needs a lot of rest coming into the playoffs. It was just a different team. To forecast with those losses and to integrate them into your model... It's just it's just recklessness. Now I don't think anyone's betting on that three percent, but I do believe that I mean that they're going to be uh, that that's going to converge to a much higher probability as as it goes on. Well, as you well know, and before we wrap this up, although we've threatened to wrap this we've, up, we've, you, we've you keep bringing up it's too mathematical know, for us to not you, to enjoy. You, yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, one of our friends, uh, my former graduate school classmate Mark Glickman, of course, developed the Glico system in honor of Elo, the Glico system, which extends the Elo system in a very simple way. You this strength that you and I been talking about is dynamic. And so now all of a sudden, instead of assuming things just update as new information comes in, you can allow these strengths to dynamically update. And my guess would be a glico system applied to the NBA wouldn't give a three percent chance. And either way, it's an interesting. We got to dis- get glico on this on our show. Ah, we can easily get glico on the show. Um, so let me ask you. Let's maybe now move to an event that you and I were at. Uh, we were very fortunate, thanks to our producer, Matt Johnson, thanks to all of SiriusXM for having us down at the NFL Draft last week. Um, we obviously did a show, like you, myself, Cade Massey, along with Scott Rosner and Ken Shropshire with our Sports Business Initiative friends. Um, so, And, of course, everybody knows, the. I hope everybody knows the NFL Draft was here in Philadelphia. We got to be down there. It was a great event. 
let's since we're in our what caught your eye in sports segment, what caught your eye about the NFL draft? Anything catch your eye about well, the draft? Immediately, what caught my eye was the trade made between the San Francisco 49ers and the Chicago Bears. And I've yet to quite understand it. I've gotten some different opinions on it. So just to recap for our listeners, um, I, I may make a, a slight error, so I'll leave that to you. Yep. Basically, the, the San Francisco 49ers had the second pick, and the Chicago Bears had the third pick. So far, so good. So far, so good. So there was a, the, the Bears were concerned that the San Francisco 49ers were going to take the draft pick that they wanted Trubisky, which is Mitchell the, Trubisky, which yep, is the quarterback. The, uh, the quarterback. Yep. And so they traded one position up from three to two in exchange for their second and third round pick, and I also believe a discount the next the 2018 third round pick. I think it, I think the way it ended up, I think you've slightly overstated the amount, but I think what they gave up is their. This year's second? third and fourth. No, oh, wasn't third their second. And okay. Third and fourth and next year's three. I think it was two threes and a four to ascend, not essentially, to exactly move up one, one spot one in spot. the draft. Right. And so this is what, what's interesting about it is we, I, we, I talked to Cade Massey, who is unfortunately able to be here this morning, but this is his expertise. And he, uh, the way he analyzes it or points to others to analyze it, particularly Chase Stewart, who's written about it online and has been on our show, that... Um, the real issue is this is what they call the chart. And so every step down the draft is a certain amount, loss of points. Yep. And that's about 400 points lost between the Two second and, and third. Okay. And that seems like... Give um, us a sense of how much, like, like is, well, how much are, any thoughts? Did you look at the chart about how much two threes and a four well, were? Well, like, see, it depends on, the problem with two is there's high two and there's low two. Right. So high two is, 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 is worth about uh, two, 300 points. I see. And low two is worth about 250. Down and low three is a hundred. So between high two and high three. So I didn't work out all the mathematics, but but from what I was assured was that uh, by the chart it was almost a fair trade. That is absolutely shocking to me. By the way, I was get I was assuming you were going to tell me that, given how much points you said for high high yeah. second round versus low second round. The fact that you would have to give up two threes and a four to go one, one spot, spot up in the draft, and I'm going to say. My guess is I understand this chart, and everybody knows this is. I think we talked about it last week. This is a chart that was made a long time ago in the maybe the early Jerry Jones era in the early '90s kind of thing. I can't believe there's greater predictive ability of the person's success between two and three in the draft. And by the way, that's one of those things we talk about. I'd love your thoughts on this as well. This is kind of I don't want to call it. It's not a natural experiment in any way, but. You're conditioning on two people right next to each other in the draft. So let's assume there's not massive differences in teams' valuation of them. And then this would be the kind of study where it would be love. You know, it's kind of like Noah's Ark. It would be great to track people in pairs and then see how they do. Any done, thoughts that, on that? That would actually be an interesting strategy. It's a matching strategy is a very exactly. particularly valuable strategy. Um, so just to, to and, and I, you know, their data on that is 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 really it's really wide open. They're, the modern anal- analysts, particularly football perspectives, they've put together a, a different different formulation. And and by that formulation, they have that the the San Francisco 49ers walked away with about 50 cents on the dollar, if you will. I mean, they got the better end of the deal. But I also think the San Francisco 49ers got a better end of the deal because this is the the draft points are expectation. They're an average over all seasons, all years, all players. They knew what they wanted. And they knew that the that they or they had an inkling. I don't maybe maybe they were potentially wrong, but there was so much diversity in this draft that after Garrett, there could have been anyone going second. Well, I wanted to ask you something. I don't even know you're you're so brilliant. You could study a thousand things I don't know about. Um, I'm going to ask you something, and if you don't know the answer from a math perspective, I'd love to hear your thoughts just from a layperson's perspective. It's what I'll call signaling theory. So the Forty ers 
must have convinced Chicago somehow, some way that they were gonna- that they were going to take. <laughs> Like, well, we could be taking lots of players. Like, they must have signaled to them, because we, as you know, we study this. Economists study this. We, we, Negotiations, we teach this. Right. Um, they must have signaled to them in a credible way that they might take the player they wanted. Because otherwise, you'd say, wait a second. There's probably 10 guys the 49ers could be taking. We'll, let's even put this in stat terms. It's a uniform distribution. There's equally likely that they could be taking 10 players. If they don't take ours, there's a 90% chance they're not going to take our guy. Let's take the risk. Let's flip the 10 side, 10% coin that they're not going to take our guy and stay where we are. Absolutely. How do you, well, how do you not do that? <laughs> I, I don't understand it because you, we look at this as a trade value and say maybe it's equal. Maybe the San Francisco guys got a little bit of the deal. But the bottom line was the Bears could have gotten their pick without having done anything. You th- well, you say that we don't know that well, we have to put. This is Mike's point. I know, we but it's have too. To pu- it, I mean, no model for this would give it at the value that it would need to be to make the trade worthwhile. Well, that's what we're talking about. So we're talking about you have. I mean, let me just just for our fans out there. There, let's imagine my simple model of there's 10 players the 49ers could have taken, and let's just imagine from the Bears' point of view, they don't know which one. We call that a uniform distribution. There's a 10% probability on each. If it's a 90% chance they wouldn't have taken the Bears player, then you say to yourself, okay, with probability 0.1, you get the value or utility of Mitch Trubisky. And with probability 0.9, you get the utility or value of the maximum, because you can take any of those you want, of the others. And you're pointing out, for that not to have been the right thing to do, they must be putting an extraordinarily, not just, not just an extreme probability, but possibly an extremely high value on Trubisky that isn't matched by any and scout or valuation that anybody did. Didn't they just pay $18 million for a quarterback? Well, of course, forty-five million over three years. Eighteen. You know, I know this well because it's my guy from the Buccaneers, Mike Glennon. Um, The Bears did. Let me just say only. Uh, yeah, eighteen million of it. It's guaranteed. No, but well, it's that's a, right. Yeah, well, but, I mean, that's, but that's the, point. the only if they, number. If they like ma- Trubisky, they can just get rid of Gunn. And, yeah, uh, but that's right, and they can get rid of him after essentially one year. It's sixteen million, and then two and a half guaranteed in the second year. But right, your point is they just went out and signed. I think most people consider one of the top free agent quarterbacks that was out there. Now they draft Trubisky, but you you can never have too many quarterbacks. You can't have two more. But I like doing the math of saying what value above all the other quarterbacks. Because let's remember. There was Pat Mahomes, who got traded up to yep. for the Kansas City Chiefs. There was Deshaun Watson. Let's not forget the guy that won the national championship game that defeated the greatest college defense of Alabama in the history of the game. The, you, the forecasters were saying there wasn't going to be a quarterback in the top 25. Yeah, there were three, three in the top it. 12. And this is the point I'm sure you're, we could talk about as well since we're reviewing the draft. All three were traded up for, and and uh, Pat Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, their t- to get up there— the teams gave up a number one pick next year. So not only were they traded up for, but they were traded up for with a huge point value, if you'd like. It's it, it's a little bit unfathomable to me. Um, but I think if you go back to, to the value, you have your one in ten. That generally is a terrible model for the second and third pick. Because it, in order to justify the scores, basically, if you look, maybe look historically, would reveal something interesting. I would guess that one, two, maybe three are fairly predetermined. 
in, in usually. And usually, I think everyone knew who was going number one this year. There was a, a there was, was discussion though that some team might trade up to get Trubisky at number one. There was even disc- look. There was some doubt. Look, there are many years you may remember where the team actually signs the. I mean, essentially says this is the number one pick. We essentially going to sign the person this year. That wasn't true. I think there was a little uncertainty, but I agree with you. In most years, one, two, one, and three, two are predetermined. Are predetermined, and so that's probably why the the Bears were so concerned to make the trade because in their historical view, one, two, and three are pretty obvious. Now let's take a look at who did the Forty ers pick. They picked uh, Solomon Thomas. Was he a consensus top one, two, three pick from yes, before? He yes, was. he was. Yeah. And according to everybody, this is, of course, the old hindsight uh, statistician. This is the player they wanted anyway. That's right. They exactly. claimed afterwards. They claimed afterwards they're afterwards like, they oh, of course, they're going to try to make themselves look good. And, of course, who's the general manager of the uh, 49ers? Oh, it's another. Fo- it's a former Tampa Bay Buccaneer, John Lynch. But either way, i, I got to keep promoting my Buccaneers team here. Um, we'll have a chance to promote other teams later. Yeah, yes. They, uh, <laughs> they said that was the player they were going after anyway, yeah. and they got two threes and a four. I think they did very, very well. Now, I'm going to let's um, – I, I actually did a study. Um, oh, great. Katie and I were, were talking at the draft about whether or not the tr- the teams have gotten smarter over the years at their dr- draft selection. And he, what Kate said is if you sort of look at approximate value and kind of correlate that over time, it doesn't seem like things have changed. So what I proposed was was that they measure um, something maybe different and what I looked at try to look at a simple statistic which would the the average draft position of a pro bowl player and see if that's changed over time. That was my my thesis. And, and this is in let me just, just for our fans out there, this is Independent of position, so you just took That's all right. the took Pro, Bowl players Pro Bowl players and look took their average draft position, which I guess let's say there's seven rounds. There's been more in the past, but let's say it's seven rounds. Could be a number between one and two hundred, or could what did you do? It's interesting. Uh, what actually, did you do for the undrafted it's, it's players? It's a very interesting thing because there are quite a few undrafted players, and yeah. I just I just cut them out. Okay, <laughs> and that's and, I, and because that's a problem, right? I got to give them a score if I'm going to get a numerical value. So this to be continued because I, I literally did this yesterday in, in prep for this show, um, Baseball Perspective has a tool, not Baseball, Football Perspective has a tool, not a great tool, for downloading this and data. I, and I just want to make sure, so I'm going to make a guess, let's, let's play a little game here. Sure. Just you tell me get, what I'm is make, I'm guessing. Get, I just want to make sure I know I wanna, what I'm I wanna, guessing. I want to make sure, I'm going to actually guess two things. So, okay. uh, so I don't, I didn't actually, was in, wasn't able to collect all the data because their tool is not, I can't just That's do a data That's not going to make my guess worse so, or better. So all I did Our was fans change, out there, all, everybody no. start thinking about their guess when Adi tells us, trust me, whatever information he gives me is not going to help. I want you to compare 2,000 to 216. All right. I've, so those, right. And so there are two numbers right. that I want you to make a guess on. The right. average draft position. And I also want of you to the, guess... Of a Pro Bowl player. Of a Pro Bowl player. And I want you to guess what fraction were number one. Not not number one, but first rounders. Okay. So let's let's do a little mental... Drum roll, please. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we're going to... Let, let's do a little mental uh, mental math here. Okay. Oh, maybe I'm getting a... Am I getting a drum roll? Danielle, Bruno, am I getting a drum roll here? <laughs> There we go. Well, let it give him a, give him a chance to think about it, maybe. And then, by the way, Daniel's going to have to give me a gong when I get this wrong here. All right, here's what I'm going to guess. All right, here's what I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that the average posi- the average draft number, so let's say it's a number between 1 and 210, roughly. I'm going to guess of a Pro Bowl player somewhere between 75 and 100. 90. Okay. Uh, I think that's probably w- w- worthy of the gong. The actual value was 56. 56. Okay. I was thinking, and more than a standard deviation. No, no. Okay. Away. So I was thinking it was somewhere in the third round. It's obviously somewhere more like second round as and an average. And now giving you a pretty good clue as to what the next number is. So what's the fraction that are first rounders? 
The fraction that are first round. And I'll tell you one hint. They're almost the same from 2000 to 2016. So Cade was right in his forecast that they really hasn't changed much. All right. So you see, Adi's trying to help me here. He did try to help me here because he wanted to make sure I was listening. So if the average is 56, and let's imagine that's not – I'm just trying to do some mental math here for our, our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. And if you want to join the conversation and give us your guess, um, maybe we should call, save it till after the break. Yeah, yeah, but they can do that. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Let's imagine the mean and the median are close. This is just an approximation, which means the median is the point where fifty percent or above, fifty percent or below. So let's imagine fifty percent or below fifty six. So it would be illogical for me to guess anything more than fifty percent. Now I've got to go from fifty six to about 30, I'm going to guess, yeah, I'm going to guess 30%. Okay, that's an interesting guess. Maybe should we save it till after the break? No. No, you want to no, know now? I want to okay. know now. Well, okay, so the, the, here's, the, here's the, the flaw in your reasoning. It, it is a long tail distribution. I know, well, you saw me going right. like so this. You, you, I knew you, it was a long tail, right. it is a but long that's tail. why I was putting more in the front end. I, I, it I was doing 30, 20. No, no, I was doing 30% round one, 20% round two, which would get me to 56 Roughly. Oh, so but you're, you're saying thinking, the average is a long yeah, tail, it has to, a long the tail right. to the right. Oh, okay. And so you actually the need average, to put more weight. You need to put more, more weight in the front. And yeah. this surprised me. This really did surprise me because it does show that first rounders are really great. Let me just make sure I unpack just for a minute or two. Let me unpack what Adi said. I took the average of 56 and said, well, there's half to the left, half to the right. But let's imagine somebody that's 200th made it. Well, that person they do. Right, and they do. That person's way above the mean. You can't go that far to the left because you can't go below one. So Adi's saying, I didn't put enough weight on the front half. I had the right logic thinking it's higher in the first round than the second and then the third than the fourth, but I didn't put enough mass towards the That's front. Right. So is it 40%? It's actually about 46 to 48%. The two wow. years were 46 in, in 2000 and 48 in, in 2016. Not significantly different, although higher in 2016, which is quite remarkable. So let's go down the list. The second round is around 14, 15%. And the third round is about 10, 11%. And the undrafteds are about 10%. Well, let me just say the good news for all our uh, fans out there. Um, Adi has informed us, first of all, he's done something empirical. We like that. We're Wharton. We're, we're the intersection of sports, business, and statistics. Empirics is good. Second, you've told me at least it's monotonically decreasing, oh, meaning, yeah. well, no, no, let's just for our fans out there, at least we see that it's higher for the first round than the second, then the third. That, that's a good thing. That's a good thing it as well. It corresponds to what we believe to be true, so that's good. That's a good thing. Um, what's also interesting, notice, by the way, I put like a 30-20 on it, and you were just saying it wasn't steep enough. It's more that's like right. 46 to 15. So that, that's, that's an Which interest- is really remarkable. It, it does show that first-rounders... By the way, this is don't confuse that, that probability of making the Pro Bowl if you're a first-rounder. This is conditional that you're in the Pro Bowl. What's the probability, if you will, that you're in the first round? You came from very, the first round. I agree. Very, very different probability. Well, that's really an interesting stat. Well, we've got a great, uh, you know, that's kind of the first quarter of our show. We've got a great three other quarters of our show. Um, we've got uh, Rick Peterson uh, coming up the next half hour. We've been holding off on baseball, which for any of our listeners know, that's shocking that Adi and I could go 30 minutes without talking about baseball. We've got Jeff Cedar and... I'm planning this year, just for our listeners out there, I'm going to figure out how to get Jeff to tell me who's going to win the race so we can put... We didn't win our bet last year, but we're going to put another bet in this year on the Kentucky Derby. And then the last half hour, we'll have more time to have caught our eye on sports. So please join us after the break here on Wharton Moneyball. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. I'm Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Uh, Kate Massey and then Shane Jensen, our other co-hosts, are out and about, but they will be back very, very soon. And again, uh, Adi and I were just talking about the NBA and, you know, this shocking ELO model of the Cavaliers at 3%. We've been talking about the NFL draft. And of course, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And Or you can email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Well, you know what's even a lower probability event than, let's say, the Wizards winning the playoffs, Audie? That you and I went a half an hour on Morton Moneyball without, without talking, talking about, about baseball. Well, in particular, without talking about our New York Yankees. Absolutely. But you know what time <laughs> that means. If it's baseball time on Morton Moneyball, it's time for our call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the old one count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. Welcome, Rick, to the show. For those of you that haven't been listening to Wharton Moneyball for the last three years, of course, they know Rick Peterson's our every-other-week guest here during the baseball season. Rick, uh, for over 15 years, was a pitching coach in the major leagues for the A's. As a matter of fact, during the Moneyball era, so this is, in some sense, our homage to Rick is uh, in, right in the name of our show. He's always oh, pitching coach, of course, for the New York Mets, director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles, and, of course, he's always been and is now as well an acclaimed keynote speaker and has a new book out, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. So, Rick, this is Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. All right. How are you guys doing today? We're doing we're extremely doing, well. We're doing great, Rick. It's great to have you on our show. It's been a great time for baseball. Awesome. My pleasure. My pleasure. So what do we got going on today? Well, we got a lot going on today. You know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, which kind of we touched on last week, but, you know, we're kind of 25, 30 games into the season. The first question I wanted to ask you is, since we're an analytics show, when does a team, you've been obviously with many teams, certainly well-known, the A's, the Orioles, the Mets, etc., when it, when you're 25 to 30 games into a season, is this a t- point where there's enough kind of, let's call it, current data for the season that might overwhelm your priors and start to, analytics will start to kick in and you say, you know, maybe we're not what we thought we were. How, how far into a season does a team get before they start making those adjustments? Well, that's a great question, and, and I've always I've always really looked at the season like a marathon. So basically, about every six and a half games, seven games, is it really relates to about one mile into the marathon. So you're, you're roughly about close to four miles into the marathon right now. So you know you got another what twenty two and a half miles to go. <laughs> well, since I've never, I should ask my 20-year-old son who actually ran a marathon, but can a marathoner tell after four miles that kind of today's not his day? You know, that's my question. I would say probably not. And, and, but, but, and you're, you're, this question you're asking is how it relates to the whole, the, the outcome of the team. Exactly. Um, because the one thing that we learned during the, during the Moneyball era in, in Oakland, we went to the playoffs four consecutive years. And for whatever reason, we always got off to awful starts. Our second half, our second halves were just absolutely remarkable. Re- remarkable. When you I say mean, awful, how awful do you mean awful? Well, five hundred we, we, or or even less. Yeah, 
Yeah, we, we would we would come into the All Star break, you know, five hundred, maybe a little under five hundred, mm-hmm. and then we, then we'd go on these crazy runs in the second half, and you know, and we would you know literally in the off season like you know go over it and say, what what can we do different, and you know one of the things we even talked about was it's really interesting. Oftentimes teams have their team party like like in early mid September uh, or mid September, and then the last two weeks they play tr- tr- tremendous. And it seemed like that team party like brought everybody together. One of the things we started doing was, you know, kind of having, you know, not not a big big team party, but a team party, you know, right towards the end of spring training when it looked like, you know, you, you pretty much knew like you were down to about thirty players, because it always brought it always brought people together. Well, let me ask you a specific question. You know, we're all AL East guys here on the phone. Obviously, you were with the Orioles for a long time. You know, Adi and I are, you know, we bleed Yankee blue and white. Let's imagine you're the Orioles and you're sitting there roughly sixteen and nine, and the opposite, you're the Blue Jays. You're sitting there at eight and seventeen. When does the optimism set in for the Orioles? Let's say, and when does the pessimism set in for the you know Blue Jays? They were Blue Jays were supposed to be. Maybe they still will be a good team this year, but they're eight or nine games back, twenty five games into the season. So, like, should the Blue Jays really be worried? Is eight and seventeen just you know? Well, we got off to a bad start, but we can come around. Yes, the, the answer is yes. You start to concern, you get concerned. The optimism when you're like where the Orioles are right now, and, and the Yankees for that matter. You know, you try to temper it a little bit. You know, like when you look at the Orioles right now, if you're really inside, like you know, the front office maybe not on the field, because it's a whole different it's a whole different mentality when you're in uniform and when you're you know when you're in the front office i, I think the, i think the Orioles run differential is only like the difference i think it was like minus it's one, one right now They're yeah plus one right now and matter of fact i was gonna rick i'm so glad you transitioned to that because that was one of the topics i was going to talk to people uh, talk to adi about as well the orioles are a remarkable 16 and 9 with 100 and runs 108 runs for and 107 run runs against meaning they're only plus one they should be a 500 team and they're 16 and 9 that, that's my point. That, that typically, it's tough to beat those numbers. You know, over 162 games. And the Yankees, of course, are 43 runs over oh, uh, more runs than they've scored, which forecasts them that they're right on track to be as right. good as they are. Now, what I wanted to ask you, in following up on, on, on Eric's question, is the preseason rankings, particularly from some of the hotshot sabermetrics, maybe were put the things actually in reverse order. Well, maybe not quite reverse, but Orioles were forecast last, the Yankees second or third to last, um, Boston and 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 Toronto on top, and that more or less has flipped. But that, of course, is only 25, 35 games into the no twenty five games yeah. into the season. What do you right. think about the? I mean, do we really? Is it? Is it? Can we really? forecast that going forward i mean like baseball perspectives right now they're still sticking with their original rankings um i'm not and and what are you doing i i i'm 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 more along where baseball perspective is you are Um, interesting okay i mean unless you're 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 talking about some season-ending injuries i mean like if you're talking about like the mets and they just lost in the guard he's going to be out for he's out for a long long period of time Mets. He's out for a long period of time. So if you if you lose some significant pieces, 
you know, that's a whole different deal. Well, Rick, you've given given me the perfect transition to the next topic about that I wanted to talk about, which is training in the offseason for MLB players. There's been a lot of controversy, which there's no one that knows more about training and mechanics than you do about Major League Baseball pitching. There's been a lot of controversy around Syndergaard and his, if you'd like, bulking up and getting stronger in the offseason. Is that, and I'm sure you've read and seen, maybe even written some of those articles, is there something, is that the right way to train? for an MLB pitcher because we may have a lot of listeners around here who are either players or you know parents of players is that the right way to train is getting stronger bigger bulkier going to help an MLB pitcher well it depends how you do it I mean so like for example years ago Tim Tim Hudson was about you know 170 175 you know and Timmy was like 5'11 you know, very, 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 very thin. And, and Timmy put on 15 pounds of lean muscle mass coming into the, to the season. But, but he did it as he was putting that lean muscle mass on, he was doing it in the same conjunction of, of, of all the pitching exercises that you need to do as well. You know, so if you come in and you range of motion, you know, the range of motion in your, your internal external rotation, the range of motion in your hips and so on down the line, if you're maintaining that and doing those kind of exercises, you know, so let's say you did it in conjunction with yoga, for example. You know, so your flexibility, even though you're putting on lean muscle mass, you, 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 that, that's fine. You know, but if you're putting on lean muscle mass of 15 pounds and, and, and now your flexibility and your range of motion is limited, you know, then, then you're in big time danger. You know, but, but the other factor that goes into that is nutrition and, you know, I mean, you know, some of the things that have really come on in the last few years is, you know, all these, all these markers on your body. I mean, they're doing it in, in European soccer and rugby, you know, that they're tracking everything. They're trying to figure out the, the root causes of hamstring issues, um, and so on down the line. And they feel like they have a pretty good, I don't know the answer to the question, but they feel like they have a pretty good, handle on you know what is causing this and what they originally thought is not even close to what they're what they're coming up with right now you know so hydration is a big factor you know rest and recovery are big factors i mean these are all major factors into you know in in the injury rates and and for whatever for whatever reason baseball this year man it seems like every single day it's one or two guys on you know throughout the league on, on, on all these different teams that are going down and they're, and they're not going down for a couple of days. They're going down for a while. And these are not like, you know, these are not the typical like hit by pitch, you know, contusion type things or, or hit a foul ball off your leg, you know, off your foot. You know, th- these seem to be obliques and hamstrings and lats. And, and well, that's what Syndergaard pulled. He pulled a lat was the, yes. the, the muscle. Yeah. He pulled a lat and that, that a lat muscle for a pitcher I mean, you, you, you're shut down. You're done. Yes, you don't. You don't. You don't move that part of your body until this thing starts to heal. So, and, and what everybody forgets about when they talk about injuries, and they say like, you know, when they come up with a time frame like they did with Matt's not too long ago, they said, well, you know, Matt's will be out for six to eight weeks. Okay, well, that's six to eight weeks until you start to throw. Now add another probably six weeks before you're ready to pitch five innings. Well, definitely the Mets have been snake bit, if you like. We're here on Wharton Moneyball in our Call to the Bullpen segment talking to acclaimed keynote author uh, and his new book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, Rick Peterson. Uh, if you want to join the conversation with us, uh, this is Eric Brother, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 
So one of the things that, that, that interests me about Syndergaard in particular is uh, two things. First of all, they're, they're, they're saying now that he was an accident waiting to happen, that all his weight that he put on over the offseason was going to lead to, to an injury. I think that may have been the post hoc fallacy, we call that in statistics, where you see observe an event and then you come up with an explanation for it after it happened. I'd like your thoughts on that. And I also would like your thoughts on why it seems to us casual you know, observers, anytime they make a forecast of a return, it's always like a delay in an airline. It's never. It's always a lot longer than they say. <laughs> well, well, to, to the last question that you asked, it's just because you know what, what the trainers when they the trainers are the people normally in the doctors. They put the time frame on it and they say, okay, okay, he's going to be out for three weeks. But what they forget about is that's out for three weeks until you start baseball activity. Mm-hmm. Once you start baseball activity, especially for a pitcher. You know, and especially a starting pitcher, because for a starting pitcher to come back, you, you know, you, you want to get them to a minimum of 75 to 90 pitches, you know, in a, in a, in a rehab start before they actually come back. But, but I think the forecast when you're talking about a Syndergaard, when you're talking about a guy who's a max effort by his own um, admission, he's a max effort pitcher on every single pitch, that's okay possibly if you're a Chapman, you know, you're a closer, that you're going to do this for 15, 20 pitches. But when you're counting on doing this for 100 pitches, and what happens biomechanically, you have two issues biomechanically. You have a poor delivery or you have a good delivery with good movements, but you, but you get out of sync. You get out of rhythm. It gets out of, you know, your, your timing mechanism is off. So when you're maxed out, that, it's very difficult to be on time consistently. So when you're watching a game, for example, let's say a right-hand pitcher versus a right-hand hitter, and the catcher sitting down and away, and, he, and his, his intent is to throw a fastball down and away, and this pitch ends up like, like on the other side of the plate, inside, and maybe waist high or above, he's late at foot contact. Every time you're late at foot contact, you know, you're, 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 you're doing damage to, to the arm, you know, to the elbow or the shoulder. And, and most of these injuries, you know, lat is much different, but the elbow-shoulder injuries, most of these injuries, these are not injuries that happen on one pitch. It's a slow wear and tear. And I think the other thing, when you talk about max effort, they've done this study in track very often where they'll have the person run 90 yards, and they put a marker on the first 30 yards, and then they have the next 30 yards and then to the 60-yard marker, and then you have from 60 to 90. And what the instruction is, get off to, get off to a great start, and when you hit the 30-yard mark to the 60-yard mark, that's, that's a, we want you to float. They tell you they want you to float. And then from the 60-yard mark to the 30 to the 90-yard mark, they want you to, like, sprint as fast as you possibly can. The floating time is always, fa- is always faster. <clears throat> and so for some reason, when, you've, when you get in that kind of flow and that kind of rhythm, you know, you, you seem to have your best times. You know, so this max effort is, it really puts a lot of strain on, on the body. Well, I want to talk to you about now. Let's flip the coin to the positive part because we're positive people here on Morton Moneyball. I just noticed a pitcher who's having an extraordinary start at a semi advanced age for a pitcher, 34. Um, it's Irvin Santana. So let me just tell you a little bit about, I'm sure, Rick, you, maybe you've been following him. Let me just tell all our listeners his stats so far this year and his career stats. And I'd like you to know, I'd like to get your explanation of. Like, how could this happen? So this year, Irvin Santana of Minnesota is 5-0 and with a 0.66 ERA. He's got a whip of 0.71. 
Let's compare that to his career numbers, which are 138 wins and 116 losses, certainly nothing to be ashamed about, a 4.03 ERA and a 1.27 whip. And I also looked up his advanced metrics. He throws it slower than the average pitcher, his spin rate is less, and his exit velocity is lower. So can you explain to our listeners out here, you know, on the analytics side, he's got a great record, great ERA, great whip, much better than his career average, much better in a later part of his career, but the measurables, speed, spin rate, velocity, are all worse than the major league average. How does something like this happen? Well, first of all, what people don't understand about spin rate, for example, low spin rate, those are the guys who throw ground balls. Those are the sinker ball guys. So so this average spin rate, which is 2,200 RPMs on a fastball, if you're like 1,800, and if you get down to 1,700, those are your ground balls. That that ball is going to sink. You know, so what I'd be curious about in his numbers, what his ground ball fly ball ratio is compared to his compared to his career stats. Because it sounds to me like a lot of pitchers will do later on in their career. You know, they say that Sabathia has done the same thing. Later on in their career, when their velocity is going the other direction, they start going in more two seam fastballs, which is going to get a lower spin rate, which is going to produce more ground balls. You know, so for example, Zach Britton, who throws 90, 95, 98 miles an hour, he has low spin rate, and he, and he's got the he's got to sabermetrically the best pitch in all of baseball, a 97 mile an hour sinker, and I think a, a year ago in 60 plus innings he recorded 15 outs in the air. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 15 outs in the air? That, that's impossible. So my guess is that Santana he's pitching in a in a in a, in a hitter friendly. Or, or, or a pitcher-friendly ballpark in Minnesota, number one. Probably, I bet quite a few of the starts are at home. You know, they're pitching in weather that's not conducive for, for offense in Minnesota. Then he's got low spin rate, so he's probably gone to more two-seam fastballs, and he's going to produce more ground balls. Well, what interests me is is that uh, you, you talk about there's really no definitional spin rate that makes a good pitch, but if you combine it with the type of pitch thrown and the velocity, that together it can, it can do something. One of the things that, that I was talking about with my students in, in our baseball research seminar the other day was um, what is the holy grail of, of, of sabermetric stat cast to be able to take the component measurements of a pitch, of a pitcher's stuff, and, and turn that into a forecast of what they actually will do on the field. And right now that seems to be lacking. There isn't, no one really knows how to do that. No one can explain why Kershaw as Kershaw until you go out and watch him, then you see it. But you can't just look at the Statcast or the TrackMan or the the technical data and say this pitcher does this. And that's why Irwin Santana arises. We can't quite figure it out. And um, yeah, we'd and- love to hear your thoughts on that, Rick. So what are the you know what's the box score of a pitch that someone might look at and say that pitch is likely to be successful? And, yeah, and give us something that we can test in our laboratory. It, it's 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 more of a case of. Of, of a recipe, for example. So recipes are a combination of, of many great ingredients. And when you start putting spices and condiments on, on the recipe, you know, now you spice it up a little bit. A little, like people say, you like Tabasco? I like Tabasco. Well, why don't you put about a half a bottle on it? How do you like it now? You don't like it. <laughs> no, I don't like it. You don't like, you don't like I it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So when you take a look at Kershaw, Ker- Kershaw has, has the curveball that has great depth to it. Great, great vertical movement to it. His, his four-seam fastball has a, has a slightly higher spin rate. And, and so the combination of the fastball that stays on plane and the breaking ball that has great depth, those two combinations 
you know, I always ask pitchers when you talk about their game plan, it's like, hey, do you like vanilla ice cream? Yeah, I like vanilla ice cream. Do you like ketchup? Yeah, I like ketchup. Do you like ketchup on your vanilla ice cream? No, I don't like that. I don't like that. They don't go together. You know, so what? Ha- what as a pitching coach, you want to take – the, the game plan and what, what, what is complementary. And you take complementary flavors, for example, you know, peanut butter and chocolate, they go really well together, peanut butter and jelly. But just peanut butter alone, that's a little strong. But if you complement it with, with what the, the complement flavor is, you know, now this is like awesome. You know, so you have to take a picture. So like the sinker, you know, the, the sinker, it really matches with a, with a slider with, with, that has great depth to it. You know, the four-seam fastball that stays on plane up in the strike zone, that, 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 that's very complementary to the curveball. The changeup, on the other hand, the changeup goes with everything. You know, so, so when you're going to develop pitching on a kind of a, uh, on a large scale, you know, you want to – and you don't know how these guys are going to evolve as young pitchers, especially high school pitchers. So you, you want to kind of go down the path that you can, you know, you can catch a fish with a pole or you can catch a whole bunch of fish with a net. So you want to try to catch as many as you can with the net to see if they'll evolve as a major league pitcher and, and try to complement what, what their specific strengths are. So when we take a look at pitchers' spin rates as they come into entry level, you start to say, okay, who, who does he compare to? And you start to say, like, all right, well, he, he's, got this, he's got this kind of spin rate with his fastball, this kind of, this kind of spin rate with his curveball, this kind of vertical and horizontal depth with these pitches. It's like, oh, that matches up with Kershaw. You know, so let, let's see if we can get a game plan that's going to be similar to Kershaw. You know, so, so and, and that's, that's how we use TrackMan. We use TrackMan, the, the years I was with the Orioles, once we got enough data, that we took our pitchers in the minor leagues and we looked at their spin rate and we matched it to major league pitchers and then we looked, looked at videotape of them on how they attacked hitters and took videotape of the pitchers who their spin rate was very similar and see how they attacked hitters in their game plan. Well, Rick, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball this morning. We'd like to thank you uh, for all the three years you've been on. We're looking forward to speaking to you in two weeks. Of course, we're both hoping that the Yankees and the Orioles are still at the top uh, when we come and speak to you in two weeks. So thanks again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Always a pleasure. I, I learn something every time I'm on this show. You guys are really smarty pants, i got to tell you. <laughs> uh, thanks, Rick. <laughs> thanks, we'll, Rick. We'll, we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. So that has been uh, Rick Peterson, uh, keynote speaker, acclaimed author. Uh, he's got a new book out, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. So, Adi, I, you know, I just thought your question to Rick about, you know, in some sense, you know, what's the box score? What are the key metrics for a successful pitch? Like, can we – are we ever going to get there? And he's like – you know, it's not that simple. It's not simple. We certainly, we certainly haven't made any 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 successful effort at this point. We've made attempts, but nothing has been has really worked out. Do you think there's an opportunity in our last few seconds before the break? Is there an opportunity for machine learning? Is this something I can just jam a thousand variables into some big tree-based model and something's going to pop out well, that says I, it's this combination of 18 yeah, factors? I mean, I, I would like to try that myself, but I have yet to do so, so we'd have to collect that data set. Um, and, and we're in the process of doing it. They made a switch over, so it's a little bit uh, of the different systems for doing pitch FX. Um, we'd like to work on it. The ones that have done right now are straight linear regressions, and they haven't found anything. Well, I love, I love your thoughts. Um, it's not going to be just about a technology or math solution. It's going to be a data solution. So this is the first hour gone here on Morton Moneyball. We've got a big second hour to come, including one of our favorite guests, Jeff Cedar, who's going to talk to us about the Kentucky Derby. Lots coming up here on Morton Moneyball. Stay with us and join us again after the break.
You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, our sports, business, and statistics fans here. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here again this morning with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi, Shane, and Kate are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, here in beautiful Huntsman Hall. And we're replayed throughout the week. And, of course, we're a talk show. We'd love to have listeners call in. If you'd like to call in, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope all our listeners are following us on our Twitter feed, at WMoneyBall. So, Adi, it's that time of year where the flowers are blooming, the sun is out, That means horse racing time to me. It's that time. And, of course, the king of all races, of course, the Kentucky Derby. The oldest. The oldest sporting event in the United States. The oldest sporting event in the United States. must be somewhere in the 1870s, right? 143 years. Okay. Yep. yep. So in the 1870s. And that means we're very fortunate to have our returning guest, one of our favorite guests, uh, Jeff Cedar, uh, founder and president of EQB. So, Jeff, good morning. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, Jeff, we're we're always thrilled to have you on at this time of year. And, you know, first of all, where are you calling in from? Let's start with that. I'm calling in from Southern Chester County with my uh, a racehorse training center called Wynnum Farm. Wynnum. Not far from here, right? That's correct. You're, you're only about a half hour outside of Philly, no? Yeah, southwest of Philly, about a half an hour near Coatesville and Kennett Square. Ah, so very, very close by here. So, you know, there's a lot, tons of things I want to get into with you, but let's just start with at the beginning. Uh, the last time we had you on, which was obviously about a year ago, um, you were telling us about the state of the art, or maybe, except for you, maybe the lack of the state of the art of analytics in horse racing. Could you tell us what has happened? What are you working on over, let's start with that. What have you been working on over the last year relating to analytics and horse racing, and as we remember, well, kind of putting horses in CAT scans and measurement kind of things. Yeah, no, well, we've spent 35 years developing massive databases. And uh, uh, I started out when, the United, when, actually, I was one of the original people involved with the United States Olympic sports medicine movement when 1976, the East Germans burst on winning all the medals, or a lot of medals, scaring the hell out of Russia and the United States. And theoretically, because they had sports medicine, mad scientists picking uh, kindergartners out. Actually, they were using a lot of steroids, but anyway, we began, and we've been, uh, we, first thing we discovered was that elite athletes were as different from normal physically as injured and sick is from normal, and the databases were all about normal, injured, and sick. So we had to develop databases to understand the uh, what was the elite, and uh, in the case of horses, I, when I went off, they, not only did the data not exist, the experts were wrong about most of what they thought it would be, and uh, the the equipment to get the data didn't exist. We actually along the way invented a portable ultrasound machine to measure horses' hearts and lungs and spleens. We measured everything you can imagine about the way they moved and about them physically, and. Uh, uh, benchmark champions and over the years we've we've built up these databases and we uh, it took a long time and a lot of money but we figured out what were the differences one of the uh, one of the first things that really jumped out was that the gate that they the way they're running at certain velocities is different 
the way they place their legs, the angles, the timings. And are these things that horses are, like, can you take a six-month-old, a one-year-old horse, and make a future prediction? Like, at what point is the gait stable enough, if you'd like, uh, sort of pun intended, but not really, uh, stable enough to actually make that prediction? As a, before they ever race, certainly, but not as a yearling. I mean, you really need them in training with a jockey on their back. So they're early to actually the end of their yearling year. I was just at a, a auction where they had the racehorses with a, a jockey on their back, the young unraced horses. There were 1,200 of them for sale at one of the major auctions. And some of them are still yearlings because they're born in April or May, and we were there in early April. So the end of their yearling year, you can tell, if they, uh, maybe 60 days into training. We also looked at their internal organs, the hearts, the lungs, the spleens. It turns out the Russians, when they were blood doping themselves by putting extra red blood cells in for sprinting, horses do that naturally because the evolution made it so they needed to run when the wolves attacked, immediately run. And uh, so they dump their spleen, and they can increase their red blood cells by almost 70% just when they get excited. So just a quick question, since I've never been, but next time you go to a horse auction, I wouldn't mind being your guest and going with you. This would be fascinating to watch. Absolutely. Can- you sh- if you, a horse went, well, for example, at the last auction, there was one horse went for $2.4 million, and I bought two horses for about 60000 85000 and I am... I would take odds from anybody that my two will trounce that horse. And, and you do this, Jeff, using using your your uh, your biometric analysis. Yeah. Um, and which which others still? I mean, we've been talking to you on the air for three years almost now. Yeah, I think this is. Been at it twenty years. I, and I used to say why I published this in Referee. No, and I've read the, the articles. Scientific <laughs> journals. I had my studies designed by doctors and veterinarians from the leading institutions: the University of Penn, Vet School, Harvard, MIT, engineers. I had. The head of statistics departments design and, and analyze the data, and it got published. And, you know, they just don't read it. They, they don't, don't read it, but it. we're, we're talking about it on the radio. This is a national radio show, yet, yet somehow it doesn't, doesn't seem to, to, to make an impact. Now, the horse that went for $2.45 million, why did it go for so much money? Well, it, it, everything was right except what you couldn't see. It was a so traditional right? perfect and technology failure. <laughs> to sum it up. That's amazing. So this is exactly your, if you'd like, this is exactly, you know, you said, I remember over the years you've said most uh, assessments are made by pedigree. Uh, pedigree, eyeball, and intuition. So let me ask and you. They have experience looking at how the horses are put together. This horse was beautiful. It was put together right, all the angles and the lengths and the sizes. It breezed very, very, it went very, very fast, and it looked wonderful and athletic doing it. And uh, but when you looked inside the horse, it was not going to carry that speed of distance it needed. So, to. Let me make an analogy. This sounds like if for those of you who read the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis, this is a description of Billy Bean himself. He was fast. He looked terrific. He bench pressed more than anyone else uh, in practice. He hit the ball further and he was faster. But when he actually when you looked at the statistics that mattered, he couldn't hit a curveball. He, he turned out to be a complete flop. And that's really what you're doing here with these horses. You're saying that they're still stuck on looks and pedigree, and they're not looking at inside what, what really there's matters. There's more to it, too. They're not, lately, we're doing DNA, and there's a huge push for DNA now. And they have somebody who says they have the speed gene. And it's, you know, it's not enough data, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> well, so Jeff, let me ask you. I mean, just so since I don't know how this works, can you just at an auction? Can you just go up to 
um, you know, at the auction, can you just go up there and say, you know, excuse me for a second, before I bid, can I put this horse through a CAT scan machine? I mean, how does that work? Uh, where you get 10 to- days before the sale, and they're exhibiting these horses at the stables. You can watch them walk and stand. And I, because they know I buy millions of dollars of horses a year for clients, I'm not a tire kicker, that uh, they let me do the ultrasound exams. In the st- I do them late at night when the horses are calm and there's nobody there. But you do bring do an ultra- ultrasound. You don't- non-invasive stuff. Ultrasound, is that the technology that you use, ultrasound? Yeah, we actually developed a machine that's now commercially used for that uh, portable. And we developed the technology and we patented it, but everybody just violates it. And they do it wrong. It takes a lot of practice. Our technicians do thousands. Have to, each technician has done thousands a year for many years, so they're really good at it. And they just... These guys will read the paper and get a you know rent a machine and try and do it. It doesn't work. So Jeff, I wanted to ask you a question. There's other technology too. We we developed the, in the Olympics way back in the late '80s. They had fatigue curves. They they were trying to figure out which young swimmers who were fast at 25 yards would be Olympic material at 100 yards later. And they they looked at the way they fatigued in a repetitive motion. And it turns out it fits a pattern for each athlete, and it's a logarithmic velocity decay pattern. And you can extrapolate it from the time for 25 yards to 100 yards or 150 or whatever. And we, we, I have adapted that to racehorses over the 20 years, and that's what's relevant to the Kentucky Derby. You've told us very the clearly it's which horse slows down a mile and a quarter. Yeah, you've told us very clearly. It's good at predicting who is, which favorites are going to flop and which long shots have a real chance. And uh, I... I uh, so maybe I should be talking about that. The Kentucky Derby, as you know, it used to be the coming out party. They're just horses are not mature till they're five. At three, they're really adolescents. They're teenagers, and it, at three, they're just. It used to be the you know the new crop was there. They were trying to figure out who's the best of the new crop. Now, once you win the Derby, you may be retired soon thereafter. But anyway, I have the results of that for the, all the 23 horses coming into the Kentucky Derby this year. Oh, so you have the logarithmic decay curve. So just just to re- rephrase for our listeners so that you can get a sense, what Jeff is telling us is that you can use the short distances to forecast how they're going to do in the longer distance by looking at the rate at which they slow down. And right. all horses slow down as they go longer, but some horses don't slow down as fast as others. And that's, right. that's When the, you see a horse passing all the others in the stretch and this big move at the end of the race, if it's not on the grass... It, which is different, that it, almost always he is not he is slowing down. The others are just slowing down more. Well, that's obviously one of the things I always remember from you. So why don't we make that transition now to the actual race itself? Um, let me just start with just the most basic question for you. Before we get to the individual horses, I do have the list in front of you, and I would in front of me, I would love to hear about your assessment of which horses may be good sleepers, but. Isn't 23 a fairly large number of horses to be running this race? Well, they're only, it's the three of them will be uh, alternatives. You know, somebody has to come out. 20 start. Is, is, that, is it always 20 horses in the yes. Kentucky Derby? And yes, always, rightly, oh. yeah, that's the limit, and everybody wants to be there. So, and that is a huge crowd, so traffic plays a big part of it. And they come out and bang you. They thought them had their race ended right at the beginning of their heads. You know, 1,000 pounds. Uh, a horse smashing into each other. They can finish. They finish off some of their races right there out of the starting gate, and uh, it's too many. And if there's an accident, if somebody falls down in the front, oh my God, that's never happened. But it would be a disaster. Well, let's go systematically, Jeff. But it's not a lot of horses because thirty thousand are born a year, and only twenty can can qualify to be here. And everybody wants to be there. You know, two million dollar race. Wait, wait, wait. hold on a second. Thirty thousand are are born. 
who are th- they're the thoroughbred racing potential. Is right. that what you okay? And Twenty of them are going to be a run for the roses. So what's that? Less, a lot less than one percent. I see. Oh yeah, it's one. Well, it's, well, it's less than one in a thousand. So Jeff, let me just start systematically going through stuff. You already mentioned twenty horses in the race. Let's just start systematically. What does the start position? Does that have a huge effect on the race and the strategy in the race? Yeah, it has effect on the strategy. Uh, there has been one from the outside post. I mean, Big Brown is an example. You know, it. it, it What's the ideal position? The ideal positions are supposed to be like. There's two starting gates, and so right. that you get some you get some distance between the, where the two starting gates are. I forget exactly. I think it's at the 12 and the 13 are separated. Wherever it is, that's a good spot to be because you've got space on one side of you, so you don't get slammed or squeezed, and you can do some of what you want. Or else you want to be four, fifth or sixth because you don't you don't want to be number one because then 20,000 pound animals come over on you and send you right over the rail. Unless you go right to the front, use too much energy early, or unless you drop back. Now, those are your two choices. We had a horse. It was one of the favorites one year we ran. Vickers in trouble. And he was little. And the jockey had never run in the Kentucky Derby. And she, uh, uh, and, you know, she didn't clear. And so she got slammed into the rail. And he got a racing stripe on the side of him. You know, all his hair taken off. And, uh, you know, he never, and he, you know, he didn't finish well. And he never really ran well again. We're here. To, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, talking to Jeff Cedar, uh, founder and president of EQB. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. If you have any questions about this year's race or kind of the analytics of horse racing, uh, please call us. Now, so so Cedar, Wait, I also yeah. somewhere in there, we, what you asked me what I'm working on now, and it's DNA stuff. But go ahead, let's go back to the decay curves. Logarithmic velocity. Well, so the, can, can you give us a quick rundown on how the logarithmic velocity contradicts or supports some of the forecasts being made through the, the early odds, at least, for the this year's Kentucky Derby? So Always Dreaming, Classic Empire, those are the two, uh, two I wouldn't call them favorites. No, no, neither of them have more than a 20% chance or so, um, but they are the two highest. So what do you think about those? I think they deserve to be uh, favorites. I think those are the two that are legitimately can do this. Uh, uh, always dreaming is only one run in one stakes race, so he doesn't have the. Now he's going to be in there, and he's never faced this kind of talent really, so he's got a doesn't have the experience. But what do he do in that first ra- race that, that that leads him to such a high high uh, ranking? Or is this high ranking? Are, are you Jeff? Are you saying that? I mean, this is the betting ranking we're looking at. But are you also saying, based on your measurements, that Always Dreaming and Classic Empire are kind of elite based on these measurements compared to the other eighteen or twenty horses? Absolutely. But I can give you two horses that are going to be fifty to one. That are going to, I think, can have a shot at being right there with him. All right, okay, hold, hold on got? a second. I don't want to miss this because yeah. I'm going to be calling my cousin yeah. down in Tampa who's at a racetrack. Uh, uh, what? Eric, yeah. we are recording this. so I have no problem. <laughs> Lots of people can jump on the jump on the Jeff Cedar wagon here. All right, who are those horses? Okay, they're, you know, one of them is a maiden. It's never won a race. Its name is Sonneteer. The last time I, I said something like that about a maiden, uh, it was a what was Nolan's cat. He was a maiden, and I told the guy to put him in the Belmont Stakes when he asked me what to do with him, and they laughed. And then I got abuse from the racing farm, said, you know, the nutcakes and the idiots and the blah, blah, blah that are entered here. And he came in third, and he was closing fast. And then he was second in another grade one race, 
So it turned out it wasn't any fluke. So what is the definition of a maiden? Last, and he trailed the field, and I said, wait, wait, wait. And the, the trainer was pissed and this and that, and then he just never slowed down. And at the end, he was passing everybody, and he was third coming on strong. So that makes sense for the Belmont, which is the longest races, right. but well, the Kentucky the Derby is not. The quarter's farther than these horses have ever gone. They've never gone this distance, right. that's right. So How far a... have they gone, by the way, in, in the races they, they have run? All, they've gone a mile and an eighth. A mile and an eighth. I'm a mile and a sixteenth. So this is Even really a forecasting problem. may have gone this far, and I don't know much about them, so they're always wild cards. So we have Sonneteer, who else? Back who... from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and I don't know much about them, because they don't give you... I can't get the splits of the races, so I can't calculate... The, uh, accurately, their fatigue curves, their logarithmic decay, velocity decay. Besides Sonneteer, any who is the other horse that you like that maybe have long has longer odds? Uh, State of Honor. S- State of Honor is at fifty, 50 to, one. to one. Yeah. Wow, State of Honor. So Looking what? What? At Lee. Who was the other one? Looking at Lee. Looking at Lee. Very. So in- wh- why do you like these two from the from their decay curves? Yeah, I looked at their races and the splits and how they ran. They come from behind. They handle traffic, and they don't slow down. Now, whether they've got the class to do it or not, I don't know. Uh, but this is an important variable. I think they're legitimate contenders here. Why you know, do you they f- may just freak out. Some horses, they get in the gate with these other tremendous horses, you know, and they're intimidated, and they, that's it. They'll run uh, a minute and ten seconds against cheap horses, which is pretty fast for, say, three-quarters of a mile, and then you put them in against the big dime, and the, and the race will go in a minute and 11 seconds, and they're nowhere. They're nowhere. And you say, well, what the hell happened? It's called the, the class factor, and it's pretty hard to predict. Would you be surprised this year, just because I'm just basing this on, you know, Always Dreaming appears to be the favorite at 4-1. to one. That seems to be a, semi, a somewhat weak favorite So against historical standards. Would you be shocked? I mean, there's not that the base rate's high, but would you be shocked if there were a triple crown winner this year? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's a rare thing, anyway. I just so, said yeah. the base rate is low. I was, yeah. I was the guy who, who, who uh, you know, basically got the sire of American Pharaoh, and I bought the dam, and then I was part of that breeding program, and I was, you know, the decision not to sell that horse. It was in the New York Times the Friday before the uh, Triple Crown. You know, it was I was right there in front page center about sports medicine and American Pharaoh. I know something about the Triple Crown. I don't think there's a horse like that this year, but uh, you know. So, uh, there was so, a guy, was a famous guy in uh, horse racing who once said, if you want to look like a perfect ass, say something definite about a horse and <laughs> let the horse do the rest. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, so the Forbes magazine just ran a long article about forecasting and the, and the car the. The, the correspondence, if you will, between the stock market and picking horses. And here is a, a quote that, that, that this is one of their experts says. And we'd that, love to get your reaction. Yeah, to I'd the like quote. to get your reaction because, it, because it, this, is, this, is, cause this is exactly the kind of stuff that we, re, we reject in the stock market. Um, but it, 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 the, the, the analogy for horses is sort of like you go to the, to the horses parading around, walking the circle before the race, and you look for signs. Are they nervous and anxious or relaxed? Are they sweating a lot? Is their head balanced? Are their hindquarters stable? Look at their ears. Ears, nose, and tail. A tail between the legs is a bad sign. The shine in their coat is important, too. These are so-called experts inside um, information. What so do you Jeff, think of that? is any of that true? No. All right. No, well, okay. can, you, can you be... Can, yeah. uh, that's pretty unambiguous. None of... The, okay, so you're saying if I'm staring at my television and I've bet on, let's make it state of honor at 50 to 1, and... All of, like, the tails between the legs, the heads down. You're saying I shouldn't be nervous as he's walking from well, the... I mean, if it's extreme, if the horse is clearly just, you know, in distress, that's something. 
if he turns upside down in the paddock, it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. <laughs> well, <laughs> but basically, what you, you there's the, not enough data. I mean, it's all this data, and they'll talk about how the track is playing today. That there's a rail bias today. There's a slow. Blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, it's based on nothing. It's based on shit data. Pardon my because the radio. Sorry. No, uh, we, we love it. Here we on love serious. It. That's not. Uh, so you're so you're confirming when, when, when what you're essentially saying is that not only is this uh, doesn't doesn't ever, I mean, this is just storytelling without any conformatory oh, data. Racing is famous for it. There's a lot of jargon, and they talk a lot, and everybody's an expert, especially the guys who were right once. <laughs> so speaking of the right once, uh, let me ask you a question related. So you've mentioned that you're kind of moving into the DNA sphere. Um, is it because you have belief that that's going to be even more predictive than the ultrasound and other types of, I'll call it, observable no, measurements? No, it'll be earlier, so I could use it in breeding, and I can use it on younger horses. And, it, and it's because there's now huge, it's becoming a big industry, and, they're, and it's being done wrong. They have what they call the speed gene. That's like the health gene. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I think. And why are they doing that? And, you know, they have some relationships in this and that, but it's pretty poor. So what you're saying and, is it's a very a weak relationship. Methodology. It, it would be like uh, they would say you were going to be healthy from a gene. You know, instead, what you need to look for is, like, are you going to get Lou Gehrig's disease, something very specific. But they don't have the data for that. But I have 25 years of thousands of horses every year. I have all that data. on their genetic data, too? I know relate to performance, like their size and their heart and their spleen and their lungs and their gait. And I can go back to those horses and take DNA samples, and I can cr- try to find markers for the thickness of the wall of the left ventricle or for, you know, that kind of specific stuff. For, and I'm, I'm succeeding. So and I think so that I, although I'm uh, unknown in that area, and there's a, there's a big one, especially coming out of Ireland, claiming all kinds of stuff, including they can tell the difference between turf and dirt horses with a DNA. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's a sham, and I think that what we have is going to be really powerful. So are there any big differences between uh, grass and dirt? Like, let's imagine your data was, let's imagine you had a horse. Well, it's not clear. A lot of what's different, you know, there's, the data is so awful because people make that decision based on God knows what. You know, a lot of horses never get to run in the grass. Or they run badly on dirt once, so they put them on grass. They think some horses are grass horses, and a lot, mo- and but I think it's the other way around. I think they're all grass horses, and some horses can run in the dirt. It's not really dirt, by the way. It's more like a beach. It's deep, you know, four to ten inches of the sandy stuff. So just to make sure I'm clear on this, this is a standard problem we talk about in statistics all the time. The fact that you may not have seen a horse on a certain type of surface may not just be random. There could be information in that, and that's why it's kind of hard to just look at the what, what they've done on grass and dirt and kind of tell the difference because the owner or the trainer might know something, and therefore you're, it kind of, you're not seeing a random sample of races. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yes. Very, very interesting. Um, any thoughts about um, the effect of, you know, in this year's race, anything that you're looking for in the race as we build up to the race? Like, well, well, for example, well, the horse, one of the horses we had something to do with, Fast and Accurate, who's probably 50 or 80 to 1 or something. I, you know. Yeah, 66 to 1. Yep. From my gait analysis stuff, the motion analysis, he's really more of a uh, what they call synthetic service or a turf horse. And I, I don't know that he's going to make it on the dirt. And at his big race, his win was on a synthetic track that runs more like grass. 
And I, I just don't think it's going to translate to the can dirt. You, can you give our li- listeners and us a little bit of uh, explanation? How many of the of the of the big three Triple Crown races are on grass? Or are they all on dirt? They're and all dirt. They're all dirt. And how many races out there? Is it uncommon to find grass? It's not uncommon, but it's a distinct minority of the races. In Europe, they're all mostly on grass. I see. So what would happen, is there anything that would happen between, except for obviously injury or anything else, is there anything that would happen between now and the race that would change kind of your forecast of oh, how yeah, these... all kinds of things. They actually they get hurt, they get sick, they go crazy, all kinds of stuff. And another thing, big thing that can happen that could change everything is rain. So do you have a variable in your model for rain? Like for well I, well, I would if I had enough data on these horses, but most of them I don't. But, I, you know, it's none of these horses has really I – I, I have to go back and look. But, I mean, it's going to – everything changes in the mud. It'll change it all. Attitude and ability are just – but this is a wide-open – I mean, I, this is a wide-open Kentucky Derby. I just think there's one, two, three, four, five – Six, seven. I could name eight horses. I think have a real shot, and a lot of them are long shots. Is that exciting for you? Would you do you like it when you know races have this? You know, it's really not clear. Or oh, do you yeah, love like to see great? Okay, you do. As opposed chance, to, I love. To, I want to see great. Technology to show that it's not, not egghead stuff. I see. Okay. Um, so let me maybe ask you one final question here. And again, we're talking to Jeff Cedar, uh, president and founder of EQB here on Wharton Moneyball. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 7866 As we think about the race and we think about, let me ask you, what would make you, from something you observe in the Kentucky Derby, would you update your belief on the horses based on the outcome of the race? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I've, I've got an extrapolation, but I, you know, there's so much that goes into this. Uh, of course, also you have to interpret what was the traffic and what went on during the race. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm theorizing how they're going to do it a mile and a quarter. The Kentucky race is what they really do. So I will, obviously I will then take the fatigue curves off the Kentucky Derby adjusted for whatever happened in the traffic as best I can. And that'll, you know, and I'll know a lot more about each of the horses. And you'll have better forecast for the up-and-coming races. Yeah, for the Preakness, which is a little shorter, and for the Belmont, which is longer. So, Jeff, we just had a tweet come in on on our Twitter handle, at WMoneyball. So the tweet came in. Um, the question is, sh- what role does the jockey play in the forecast? How important is the jockey in this race, and how do you build that into your belief or not about the horse's chances of winning? I don't know. I guess if I had to estimate, he's about 10%, so he's significant because you're going to lose or win the race by more or less, not by a lot less than 10% of the distance. He, The jockeys can screw it up. They can't make a winner, I don't think, but they can screw it up. They cannot go through a hole when the timing was needed. They can, uh, you know, get a horse in trouble, make move too late. So, Jeff, Jeff, that, but there's two issues that come to mind here. The jock, jockey obviously can matter because the decisions that they make during the race can right. either break you or ruin you. Horse out of trouble. But are and there some horses have a running style, and if you try to get them to do something else, you you destroy them. Like looking at Lucky had a very long stride, and it was a huge advantage when he hit that long stride. But if he was caught in traffic or near the rail where he couldn't stretch out, he couldn't use it, so he would lose. What the guy needed to do was when he needed to swing wide into the stretch, give away some distance, and let that horse stretch out and run. When they finally learned to do that, then he won. So can you predict that? Are there jockeys who are known to be better than others? Yes. 
Ah. Uh, Leperu, for example, is a master with a closing horse, a one-run horse. So he, he knows when he's on a horse with a great fatigue curve, but not the best speed. So he knows he's going to be back in the pack, and he's going to be, but he's and he's got to time his big move at the end, meaning when to urge the horse, so it just it doesn't slow down uh, as much. Uh, he's a master at it. So the forecast and, that so you're making down at the horse, bottom, a fatigue, what I call a fatigue curve horse, horse. Uh, and usually they have the big long stride. I need a guy who will swing wide and know when to when to when to, the timing. And he's he's a master at it. But there's other the others, you know. The, the, there's other obvious all time big time winners. Well, Jeff, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. This is we've been talking to Jeff Cedar, president and founder of EQB. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much. Um, enjoy the Kentucky Derby. We will. And thanks for all of your help uh, helping our listeners and ourselves understand yeah, the race. Great to have you. Thank you. So we've been talking to Jeff Cedar. So, Adi, uh, you know, just a debrief for a minute or two before our break. Um, it's, again, amazing to me how all of this science has been done, and it just still really hasn't been widely adopted. It's just, I, I just, it's hard for me to, I, it's not impossible for me to explain, but well, just hard for me to explain. I think because all the scientific and energy is being spent on forecasting who wins individual races. So the experts, the, the, and there's a lot of expertise being plowed into this because there's a lot of money internationally on horse racing. They're doing the forecasting on the individual, on the race level. And that's where the logarithmic curves come in. But where, where Jeff Cedar really makes his living and where he's really in, unique is he's trying to forecast whether a, 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 horse. a, a horse at a very young age, age. is going to be a, a champion. Yeah, he advises, because that's his business. Right, he advises he, owners I know, on who but to when, buy. He, when he tells us that one horse is two point five million, the other That's one's right. sixty thousand, I would think Everybody would be on board. Like, you we, would think, and I, th and that's what that's what seems so odd for me. Every year we bring him back, we ask any progress. Nope, it's very traditional. I mean, if you look, if you actually read a little bit about horse racing, you see this is uh, this is an industry that is very elite, and there's a certain group of players. Um, a lot of it is Middle Eastern, and they have their ways, and it's hard to change. Well. You know, we're we're here on we're a show on sports business and statistics. Eventually, the business is going to kick in and the data is going to kick in. And of course, you know, we talk all the time here about sports that were very traditional, and then analytics have made a good role. So this has been three quarters of our show here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, we still have lots to talk about uh, in our last quarter of the show. Uh, please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi, Cade, and Shane are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, we've had a great show so far. Uh, we've had uh, Rick Peterson, uh, acclaimed keynote speaker, uh, pitching, longtime pitching coach, uh, director of pitching development, someone that was there at the founding of the Moneyball era. And, of course, we just uh, got off with Jeff Cedar, who was uh, you know, president and founder of EQB and talking to us about the Kentucky Derby. So, Adi, as you and I wrap up, and for those people that want to tweet, remember, thank you for our, our last tweeter who tweeted us at, at @wmoneyball, And, of course, you can join the conversation 
and live here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. Or you can email our producer Matt Johnson at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. I'd like to go back to something we were talking about with Rick Peterson in our eight thirty to nine o'clock hour, which was you know we were talking about the Yankees and the Orioles, one of our favorite topics. One of our favorite topics. We were talking about both teams. I think sitting at sixteen and nine, but with the Yankees with a plus forty three differential, meaning they've scored forty more forty three more runs than their opponents in their games. The Orioles essentially, or they're a plus one, essentially equal. And we talked about something I'd like to talk about, a topic you and I have talked about before. This, there's a known Pythagorean equation that predicts win percentage from runs scored and runs given up. Could you just review quickly with our listeners what that is and why, in some sense, um, it might be a little shocking that the Orioles have the record they have with the runs they've given up. Yeah, so there's a, uh, this is something that, that Bill James discovered, and it, it's a formula that exists for every sport. And it's a way to, to translate the runs scored, runs allowed, into a forecasted winning percentage. And we all know, of course, that in baseball, runs scored and runs allowed in any given game tells you who won. But if you aggregate across a season, that gives you a fairly good approximation of what your winning percentage should be. And there are a variety of different Pythagorean formulas. The, the original one by Bill James was square the number of runs scored divided by the sum of the squares of the number of runs scored and the, and the number of runs allowed so let me squared. Just, let and me that, just, of course, reminds you of the Pythagorean theorem, which is why he calls it that. So let me just remind our, just give our examples on an example here. Let's take the Baltimore Orioles. I know, I actually know their numbers, but let's just say approximately they've scored 100 runs and they've given up 100 runs. Obviously, the way you would do it, well, in this case, it's obviously going to predict 50%, but you take 100 squared. That's 100 is the number of runs they've scored. You square it, so that's 10 thousand then you divide that by the number of runs they've scored squared plus the number of runs they've allowed squared and in this case of course it's 10,000 over 10,000 plus 10,000 which is a half so one way to think about this and this is what you asked Rick about is about adjustment you know in some sense they're sitting there at 16 and 9 which, which is, is 640 which is 6 right that's what I was 640 the prediction is 500 they have a residual of 14% that's a very significant residual. The Yankees, could you, well, by the way, could you tell us what does the Pythagorean, okay, so the Pythagorean formula tell so, us the Yankees should okay, be at? So the Yankees are 43, um, 43 runs scored more than they've allowed. They've allowed only 97, which is second in lowest number of runs scored, second only to the Chicago White Sox. And they have, have scored an enormous number of runs, 140. That is second only to the Washington so Nationals. So if I take 140... In the Milwaukee Brewers. If I take 140 squared, which is roughly 20,000, mm-hmm. and divide by 100... 140 squared plus 97 said, well, squared. I can do that math in my head. That's oh, yes, going to be two can. thirds, roughly. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be. It's yeah, 20,000 it over 20,000 plus 10,000, roughly. It's, so, it's, around it's actually 68%. It's exactly right. that. And, and it's, it's, so, therefore, the Yankees were, are expected to have a 680 winning percentage. They only, only have a 640. They're actually underperforming. Their residual is negative. So, the residual is the difference between what's observed and what's expected. And so, they're actually underperforming while the Orioles have, have overperformed. So, if you roll the this forward, you'd expect That's what the Yankees. I was ask you. Well, if you roll this forward, you expect you'd say the Yankees are for real, and the and the Orioles are overplaying their quality. Now, what's really interesting is to go back to the what we call priors. So, what were the seasons prior forecasts? I think the Yankees were at eighty one. I think so the, Yankees the Yankees were exactly were, at five hundred. The Yankees were at eighty one, which put them at this is a tough league, so tough division, tough league, and put them at about third or fourth in their in their particular in their in their in their conference conference and their and their and their division. The Yankees were supposed to be second to last, maybe third to last. The Orioles are supposed to be last. So we asked Rick on the air, what would you do with that information? 
the new information compared to the old dif- information? Would you update to for forecast that right. the Orioles Based are actually on pretty good? Games. And so if you integrate all the information that we have, the sixteen and nine record for the for the Orioles, a Pythagorean that predicts fifty percent, a prior calculation predicted well under five hundred, and Rick is still sticking with the with the Orioles at sub five hundred. You know what? I love what you've done here. I just want to emphasize to our listeners, but we all know we've all learned over these last years. I've known Adi for twenty years that he's a smart man. Notice what he's done here. He's given us three pieces of information that one could use to try to converge on an answer. One is we have the observed data, 16 and 9. That is what it is. I mean, they've won. You can't six, take it away. You can't take In it fact, away. that's seven games over 500 that are not being stolen from them. Right. They can't. Right. Those, they're not giving those back. But number two, you've then used another piece of data, which is this Pythagorean formula, which said they should be at 50%. Then you're using a third piece of information, which is the prior. And so my question to you is, this is obviously everyone that's driving, listening to SiriusXM here is wondering, how do I put those all together in some way to come up with some overall forecast? Okay, well, that's that's what's complicated, and and, right. you, and you typically do this if this was Rufus Peabody that we're talking about, the professional gambler right. and this colleague is a, of, of Kay Massey. Yep. Uh, he would say you, what you do is you do what works. So, in other words, you go back historically and you take the probably a linear regression of all this information and you try to see which predicts best in the long run. And if you were like Rick or Baseball Perspective, I think you'd be selling the Orioles right now, um, given when that they're say, overperforming. Just to be clear, when he uh, when I mean selling, he means he's predicting. Um, tremendous shrinkage back from 640 to what the the prior is. Yeah. In other words, selling isn't if like if selling you own a stock. It, if you own it, you basically say it's not going to do... I think People think it's overvalued. So when I say sell something, that's, 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 that's sort of gambler's code for it's worth more than people think it is. I mean, it's worth less than people think it is, sorry. Yeah, so well, either way, I think... But I will throw in one more thing, and I want to do yeah. a shout-out to one of, my, one of my really terrific students, Eric Babbitts. Eric has worked for the Orioles for a number of years now, and this year he'll be with the Phillies, so we're really happy about that. He's a Wharton, Wharton senior. We were talking about that in our, uh, in our seminar, and he says every year everyone sells the Orioles short. And every year they do better than... than uh, they actually have the best record in baseball over the last six years collectively. I, that's what he told us and I'd like to check that over and take the last six years and aggregate up and they have the best record in baseball. And the point is is that they have a strategy that isn't quite forecasting the way the, the, stat, the stat or the regular analysts have, have said. So this is a, something we'll throw out to, the, to, to our listeners, to ourselves to check but, but that suggests that maybe they aren't underperforming. Well, that's a, it's a great uh, that's a great interesting stat to look at. Now, maybe it is true. Maybe they've been just very good but haven't won the title. Maybe, I mean, well, I hate to say it this is the classic knock on Buck Showalter, is that he's a great manager, but he can't kind of win the big one, which, as we know is from Shane, is a bunch of coin flips. But Buck Walter is a great manager. Buck he's Showalter. A, Buck is, Stolz, is, I'm sorry. Yeah. Buck Showalter is a great well, manager. He was. He was the, remember, he started with the Yankees. Absolutely. Um, he is a great manager. Uh, if you want to dig a little deeper, I mean, one of the reasons why no one really forecasts the Orioles is they never tend to have any starting pitching. They have great hitting, great relief. And this year, I think that that is exactly true. But who are their starters? Well, that's, by the way, you're, the first thing I thought about when I, I noticed the same stat you did about runs scored and run against for the Orioles, the first thing I thought of was they must have great relief pitching because the only way you could, not the only way, one obvious explanation is they're winning every close game by a small amount, which must imply that their relief that's pitching right. is good. And that's, that's what I inferred from that, you know, if you'd like, residual between performance and the Pythagorean and prediction. And to, to follow up on that, that very astute observation is that for those who have criticized Pythagoras, the where it seems to be problematic, where the residuals don't, don't seem 
seem to where, where they're largest is where you have extraordinarily closing relief. The Yankees for years, years. had the outperformed best, their, the best their ever. Pythagoras, ah, the best and they ever. had the best ever. And I think the, the Orioles have had Zach Britton, who is, has absolutely been the best closer in baseball. I mean, Rick Peterson, our call to the bullpen segment uh, guest, uh, mentioned Zach Britton all the, the time. The best pitch in baseball. Yeah, with the yeah. best pitch in baseball. So let's tr- uh, transition. Let's stay on baseball, but let's transition. Um, I actually noticed uh, today was the birth date of obviously someone near and dear to my heart and your heart, uh, Jolton Joe, Joe DiMaggio, Yankee Clipper, the captain, the captain before the other captain. You know, it's, it's amazing the lineage, right? There's been Lou Gehrig was the Yankee captain, and then, of course, Joe DiMaggio was the Yankee captain. I don't know that Mickey Mantle was ever the there Yankee captain. He was not. Captain. I think the next ca- Yankee with captain. With Oh, uh, no, it was Thurman Munson, I believe. Oh, you're right. Good Thurman point. Munson yeah, yeah, was, yeah, was point. named yeah, captain. Definitely, definitely Thurman Munson. But we've had a great lineage of Yankee captains. I started to think, since we're a sports and statistics show, I started to think about you know his 56-game hitting streak, which, um, as everybody knows, still to this day is the longest hitting streak. Uh, the second longest, um, Pete Rose once got to 44 games. Uh, there's been a couple of 41s, but we basically have, no one's come particularly close to 56 um, anytime. Not going to happen. Right. Not going to happen. And, and actually, it's not going to happen for a reason that, that we'll, I will get to, but hopefully we'll close out the conversation when I explain why. But I wanted to give my... So I was starting to think to myself, what's the probability that a 50, that a given player would have a 56 game streak. So let's be let's be more precise and this is I think this is let's imagine that on a given player begins a 56 game hitting streak today. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's the calculation. So I want you to basically I think this is a calculation I hope all of our listeners can uh, uh you know feel comfortable about and I want you to shred it. I want you to tell me why this is not a good calculation. So here's the way I was thinking. Let's imagine we have a hitter that bats 300. This is an assumption. It makes the math easier. We have a 300 hitter, okay, which means every time he comes up, he's got a 30% chance of succeeding and a 70% chance of failing. Let's take a simplistic view of him having four at-bats in a game, okay? So the probability of him getting no hits, zero hits, there's only one way that can happen, no hit, no hit, no hit, no hit, that's 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7, which is roughly 25%, which means the probability of getting at least one hit in a game is one minus that number. There's basically a 75% chance a 300 hitter will get a hit in a given game, which, by the way, is an interesting fact. Forget the Joe DiMaggio thing for a second. If you're a 300 hitter, you're basically going to get hits in about 120 of the 160 games. Some games you'll get multiple hits. But if it's if .75 is the probability of at least one hit in a game, I just took .75 and raised it to the power 56. What's the probability that I get at least one hit in 56 consecutive games? And that turns out to be about one times 10 to the negative 7. And so to me, what's wrong with the calculation I've done? Let me just repeat for our listeners the Bradlow simplistic envelope calculation. A 300 hitter, therefore the person fails with probability 0.7. For them to get no hits in a game, they have to fail, let's call it four consecutive times. That's 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7, which is about 0.25. I take one minus that number, which is the probability of at least one hit. So now I'm at 0.75, and I raise that to the 56. I think that's a pretty good so, approximation. So what is your number? One times 10 to the negative 7. Okay, so that's a one in about 10 million. That is correct. Okay. That's where I'm at. And oh. you, I want you to tell me why. I mean, I understand it could be off, but maybe I'm not very far off. Just 
enlighten me, enlighten all of us. Well, first of all, I mean, that's uh, too low a batting average for for the top hitters in, in baseball, particularly in their in their prime. And so the year that, that DiMaggio hit a uh, 56-game hitting streak, Ted hit Williams hit 406. And so, by the way, just for our listeners out there, Ted Williams hit 406 and did not win the MVP yeah, so, that so year. So let me give you a quick change in your, in your numbers, and you can see how it changes. So one in 10 million was the 300 batting average. Correct. Four at-bats per game. Ted Williams batted 400 that year. If you assume four at-bats per game, it goes to 41 out of 100,000. That's a lot higher. That's well, a lot that's higher. Four hundred percent times higher. Four hundred times higher. Four hundred times higher. So, so you're right. No, 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 no. But four hundred times higher. You're, yeah. I, I know you're going to continue, but this is exactly pointing out. So again, it's not. Look, I made an assumption, which is fine. You're telling me number one that may be an implausible assumption for someone that's likely to get there, and also you're pointing out the thing all statisticians, all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball should do is what's the sensitivity to that assumption? Because someone might say, well, 400, 300, I understand there's a big difference. You're actually bringing it, to, you're bringing it to this problem and saying your estimate would change by a factor of 400. It's not, you know, it's not minimal. Exactly. 400, 400 times, times more right. likely. Now, now, here's interesting. Here's an interesting, another fact. I've actually studied this, and, and this, is a, this is a whole um, hour-long section of my, my Moneyball class for my high school students over the summer where we really deconstruct this exa- these these. Two streaks. And I'm sitting here thinking, as a proud father, my 17 year old son Zach Bradlow, who's going to be there, is thinking this is exactly this, this is what I'm coming. This it. is what I'm doing. So one of the things that the, the, here's a, here's a fact we'll start off with. Um, Dimaggio hit 408 over his streak, which is almost identical to what what Williams hit over the entire season. So 408 over streak. Now here's the interesting question. I'll see how well you can you can figure out. Um, Dimaggio essentially, uh, uh, even though let's imagine two hitters both with about the same batting average, about 400. Here's a, here's what I what I conjecture and I will yeah. show. DiMaggio is the only one has even a remote possibility of doing it. The chance that Williams had it is is is, is hundreds of times less likely than DiMaggio. Why do you think that's true? So let me just make sure I understand the question. Make sure our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball understand the question again. If you want to join the conversation, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can always email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com throughout the week. Or, as we had a uh, tweet this come in during the show, at W Moneyball. So I just want to make sure I understand. I've got two hitters of identical ability, if you'd like, 400 hitters. And you're claiming one of them has a much higher likelihood of having this streak than another hitter. In fact, one of them is not insanely unlikely, and one is essentially a zero. Okay, but am I allowed to assume anything else, or do I, can I assume anything else uh, I know about the hitters? Yes, you'll need to. Okay, you absolutely so need that's to. that's why. Because let's make sure. Let me just say why Adi smiled at me, because he knows... If, I, if that's the only information I had, I would have to make identical predictions Absolutely. for the two of them. And in fact, if you implied what you assumed to start with, they would have to be identical because they you were assuming. They would have to be, right. But is it, and it's, very, it's interesting historically, and this is why I want you to, to, fi- to fixate on it. What is the difference between DiMaggio and, and Williams that makes DiMaggio's forecast unlikely but possible and, and, and Williams essentially All right, zero? I'm going to make a prediction, but I'm sure it's not right. But there could be many reasons, but I'll come up with one. So I think one could argue, um, I don't want to call it momentum, I'll call it something I did in an academic paper with one of, the st- of our stat doctoral students, Yao Zhang, I'll call it clumpiness. And here's what I mean. When DiMaggio is hot, 
sorry, when Williams is hot, he gets real hot. But he also gets cold. So Williams has more zeros in his data. Williams has more games for which he might go 0 for 4, 0 for 5. But when he's on that day, he's 4 for 4, 4 for 5. That gives you the same batting average, but it doesn't give you the same potential for streaks. So I'm going to claim that the statistic, if you told me, let's call it the fraction of games, let's say over their careers, with zero hits, DiMaggio dwarfs uh, Williams. He has much, He's just... Joe Steady, he's just 400 every day. But Williams, some days he's zero, some days he's 800. Okay, so that's that, my prediction. That is an explanation that if the if the underlying facts were true, would explain it. So the idea being, if you're a hitter who hits half your, if you go six for six on some days and 0 for, 0 for six on other days, you can still have a great batting average overall, but you have no chance of doing a streak because you're not streaky. And, I mean, you are streaky. And, but that turns right? out, it turns out that that's not the case oh, between the two hitters. Darn it. So I will, I will go backwards a little bit, and I want you to think about today's batting, what are today's battering doing that neither DiMaggio nor Williams did and just what are they doing more than ever this year this year compared to last year I assume you're going to tell me all right so now what are all hitters doing they're just doing Uh, it like crazy I was going to say I was going to say hangman and nine letters and it (laughs) rhymes with strikeout yes that's exactly right they are striking out unbelievable numbers of times now here's a statistic that will blow you away over the entirety of the streak DiMaggio struck out 13 times so that's he, it. So he struck out 13 times. Over 56 in, games. Oh, yeah. So that's roughly 250 at-bats. So he had an extreme— He, he based, struck out over the season 30 times. Okay. So what you're telling me <laughs> is what I should have answered you is it's not about streakiness. It's get the darn ball in play. Okay. Now, what else did—what did Williams do that, ever, that our great hitters are doing today more than ever? But DiMaggio didn't. Hit the long ball? Uh, no, that, that's not it. Williams hit the long ball. He was a good hitter. No, no, Williams did hit the they, long they ball. They both but, do it. But yeah. Williams w- did walked. Williams walked over oh. and over and over again. And what happens when you walk? You flip less coins. You, you, don't have, you, coins. you can't get hits. Williams had an incredible number of games, which is really interesting. He had three one-at-bat ga- one games. Three. Five two-at-bat games. You can't. It's almost you can't. You right. can't get hits if you, you have can't. one at bat. And 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 uh, by the way, no at bat games don't count. So you can remove those from from the. So if wait a second. Had, would would if you had a four walk game, would they, those don't count in your streak? Really? Yes, that is one of the rules of. I believe that you know it's something I should check, but I believe that is one of the rules. If you never have a no, chance but to take, you've brought up a really fascinating point here, which is that you know what's interesting is. So let me. I don't want to. I'm not going to change my answer because my answer is wrong. That's fine. I'll live with that. You've brought up something I should have thought about, which is a good lesson for everybody here doing statistics, which is clumpiness could be an answer. But I hate to say it, most statistical problems about rarity come to how many opportunities do you get? That's it. And clumpiness is a second order effect. I'm not saying it's not true, but you've pointed out the most effect. How many times do you if, – if you p- don't put the ball in play, I guarantee you have zero chance That's of right. getting a hit. And number two, how many coin flips do and you it, get? And in fact, one of the – I read a wonderful book about DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, and there were – there were pitchers who's basically they would get him out once and will walk him the rest of the time. They were n- trying to stop his streak by deliberately walking him, and and because Williams was such a selective hitter, he had many games where he had where he had one at bat, two at bat, three at bat, and DiMaggio didn't have any of those. He had no one at bat games, only three two at bat games, and he had many many five at bat games, of which was really, really 
important. Very, and very important and very rare for, for Williams because he walks so much. And that's why you'll never see a 56-game hitting streak again. Never. And the reason for that is modern hitters walk. And that's the money ball revolution. They know that walking is a good thing. When you, when you read the, the biography of DiMaggio, he'll tell you, the fans came to see me hit. They didn't come to see me take pitches. And as you know, Ted Williams had the opposite exact entire opposite. philosophy. He said, I can't hit well when I'm not p- swinging at my pitches. So, and he knew that. And, and, and that's why Williams is the founder of modern, great modern hitting. And DiMaggio, as great as he was, was very much a product of his era. Not what's really fascinating, and you know, for those listeners that obviously we want you to tune in every week, but Adi and I are going to have a discussion. It's the next show, it's just Adi and me. We're going to have a discussion of the following. And you've brought up something that really ties to our show. How has the Wharton, how has the Wharton, how has the Moneyball era changed, let's call it the statistics of baseball? You just brought up a great one. A streak like this will never happen again because people know the value of walks. They'll flip less coins and therefore, so in some sense, the Moneyball era has led to this streak being even more extraordinary and being even less likely to be broken. Wow. Not going to happen. So you know what? This it, is it, by the way, it's, it was ridiculously rare for DiMaggio. So what odds did you have so, for so, it? Uh, so DiMaggio was 53. Um, so I have here .000053 was the probability. .00053. So like 53 in a million? 53 in a million. 53 in a million. Well, just, and where was I? I was like one in 10 million. Yeah. Okay, so I was only off by a factor of 500. Right, and so <laughs> partly <laughs> it's because, so his gain is partly because he hit, he, hit four, he hit 400, not 300. But he loses because he has a lot of these games with only two at-bats. That's where, that's where you lose a lot. Two at-bat games are horrible. No, yeah. It's, <laughs> and by the way, it's interesting because one of the questions of what we call convexity, which is better, half two and half, half six or all four? The I'd rather have all four. All four. All yeah. four. Yeah. Well, this has been a great two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our guest, Rick Peterson, uh, our call to the bullpen segment. I'd like to thank Jeff Cedar, president and founder of EQB. Obviously, I'd like to thank my co-host, Adi Weiner, this morning. This has been a great two hours. We're here live every Wednesday morning from 8 to 10 Eastern and replayed throughout the week. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Johnson. I'd like to thank our sound engineer and associate producer today, Danielle Bruno. Um, lots of sports to enjoy between now and next week. NBA, NHL, obviously the Kentucky Derby. Uh, Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Stop it.